Welcome back to another edition of KPBS Cinema Junkie Podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Film editors don't get enough love. I'm sure there are directors and actors who appreciate what an editor can do, but film editing is one of the most misunderstood and least appreciated of the craft categories. When an editor does their best work, nobody notices, uh, and nobody should notice, because like I said, the, the editing is that element which, which kind of invisibly strings it all together. It's easy to see what an actor does in a movie, or what a cinematographer or a makeup artist contributes to a film. But to the average filmgoer, the editor is merely the person who lets a film run too long or fails to match a cut. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people think that editing is sometimes as simple as cutting out the bad part or just doing what the director wants. But an editor can significantly contribute to a film's storytelling. Take Elmo Williams' work on High Noon. He added repeated shots of clocks ticking down to the 12 o'clock hour and made the film play out in real time to add tension to the story. Some editors form longtime partnerships with directors that result in stunning collaborations, as with Martin Scorsese and his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. I think that the fact that we collaborate so well, that as I said, it doesn't become a battle of egos. And that's, I think, why we get along so well. He knows that I'm going to do the best for his movie. Um... And that's the way we shape this raw material, very much the way you, a sculptor takes a lump of clay and shapes it into a portrait of someone. So I think people may not understand how raw the material is that comes to us and what we have to do to manipulate it and cut it to make it work. I can't tell you how much joy it gave me to see Frances McDormand play a film editor in the Coen Brothers' screwball Valentine to Hollywood, Hail Caesar. Hello, Cece. I rather thought we might go to later. Oh, hi, Eddie. Want to lace up what you got on Merrily We Dance? It's up now. I'll put some music on it. We see her masterfully rack up film on a 35mm upright moviola, slapping sound onto picture and running a scene for the studio head. It's not just a nod to that person who sits in a darkened room all the time, but also recognition that from the beginning, women were working as editors and proving their value to a production. Plus, it points out the dangers of wearing a scarf on the job. <laughs> I shouldn't wear scarves. But since editing still seems to be something of a mystery to many, even to some who work in the industry, I'm going to talk with some brilliant editors about their work on this year's Oscar-nominated films. For this podcast, I'll speak with a trio of editors who were all nominated for this year's American Cinema Editors, or ACE Eddie Awards. The editors are Tatiana S. Regal for I, Tanya, Paul Matchless for Baby Driver, and Gregory Plotkin for Get Out. ACE has been celebrating the art and craft of editing since 1951. It recognizes that an editor can control the pace of a film and craft a performance. Editors can also begin working as soon as shooting starts and stay with a film all the way through post-production. 
Regal and Matchless are also both up for editing Oscars this year, while Plotkin worked on the Oscar-nominated Get Out. All three discuss the challenges and rewards of editing in a new digital age. And all three display innovation in dealing with narrative structure and storytelling. And for Matchless, there was also innovation in the actual process of how Baby Driver was assembled. Whether you're a casual filmgoer who's just curious about what makes a well-edited film, or if you're a filmmaker who wants to learn more about the craft of editing, these skilled artists will provide enlightenment about their profession. First up is Tatiana Regal, who spoke with me the day before she won the Eddie Award for Best Edited Feature Film Comedy. I began by asking her how she ended up in the rather unglamorous job of a film editor. Not very many people know what editors do, and I certainly didn't when I first started. But when I got out of college, I moved back to Los Angeles, knew I wanted to get into movies. I just didn't know what I should do. So I sort of, you know, created this list of possible jobs in in my head and went through and crossed off all the ones that I didn't think I would be appropriate for or interested in, which kind of left me with a very short list of one, which was editing. And that kind of turned out to be a perfect combination of both sides of my brain, very creative and yet very technical, which suited my personality. And um, my father was a professor at UCLA when I was growing up, and my mother was a school teacher, and I grew up in L.A. and saw films being shot all around, and I was fascinated by it, and I loved going to movies. And, and then eventually, when I wanted to try to find a job, I was asking people, uh, you know, friends of friends of my parents and stuff, if they knew anybody, and uh, developed this list and, and finally got a, a job, in quotes, working for free in exchange for training on a very low-budget uh, feature film called River's Edge, uh, where they taught me um, you know, how to sync dailies and code and log and all of the things that an apprentice and assistant editor does. And I just fell in love with with the job. Looking at your credits, you had some directors early on that you worked under that would seem to give you a lot of interesting perspectives because you you worked on a film that Alan Rudolph directed, that Oliver Stone and Quentin Tarantino. I mean, these are all directors who their films feel very different in terms of kind of their narrative structure. So how was it working early on with directors like that? Oh, it was wonderful. It was so fortunate. And not just the directors, but the editors. Uh, when I was an assistant, I got to witness remarkable relationships and wonderful collaborations between those directors and their editors, which was a graduate film school class to me. It, the directors are amazing, and I was very lucky. Some of, some of that is just dumb luck, and some of that is trying to search out the filmmakers that I really like and try to uh, work with them. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, for example, Quentin Tarantino, I worked with on three Quentin films uh, with Sally Menke, his longtime editor, and I just tried to be a sponge and, and watch and learn. You mentioned Sally Menke, and one thing that had always impressed me about editing is that from a very early time, women were recognized editors um, early on in the industry. And that seemed, for me, like growing up when I was a teenager, it was neat to see women in those roles kind of being featured. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. Uh, there are a few, and, and they're, they're 
pretty, you know, famous relationships between directors and their female editors, Quentin and Sally, uh, Martin Scorsese and, and, and Thelma. It's, it's wonderful. I think it's a very, very unique collaboration. I think it's something that's very important to have a director and an editor that obviously have the same taste and sensibilities and yet have different histories that they come from and, and uh, points of view that they can bring to the film. Uh, if you're sitting in the room with somebody who thinks exactly like you do, I just don't think you're going to get a, a, as good a story told. Whereas if, you, if the director and the editor have a real collaboration and, and use each other as sounding boards and build creatively on top of each other, which happens when you think a little differently, when you come from different backgrounds, and you just end up with something so much more rich, and it's really fun. Having said that, there aren't that many women editors. Our union, the Motion Picture Editors Guild, uh, I think is only around 23% female. And I understand many film schools now are really sort of 50-50. And something happens pretty early on in the process where I think women um, drop out of these careers, either because of, you know, family or, you know, having children or whatever, but I think more so because of a lack of opportunity. Um, and I think that's what's, you know, coming forward right now with, with a lot of conversation that I think is, is uh, slowly going to be very helpful. Yeah, I mean, there's still, it's still the minority, but I just remember seeing editors like Dee Dee Allen and Verna yeah. Fields that, and I wasn't seeing women cinematographers or that many women directors. Absolutely. Of, of, all, of all of the departments, you know, you know, like that, it's, editing is definitely the best. It's not uh, equal yet, but it's, it's definitely better than cinematographers or composers. I mean, name the last female composer. <laughs> you know, it, it almost never happens. Yeah, that's true. It's definitely a, a field that makes it a little easier. Editing is something that I think most people going to a film, just watching, don't really understand what it is. So is there like one kind of misconception you'd like to address? Is there something that you get asked a lot and go like, uh, yeah, that's not really what it is? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people think that editing is uh, sometimes as simple as cutting out the bad parts or doing what the director wants. I mean, I get the material that they've shot. I, I work as they're shooting, and I get the material the next day, and I watch the dailies, and I go through and pick performances. I pick the angles that are used. And I assemble the scene, you know, from a storytelling perspective. So I have to have an understanding of that. I have to have an understanding of performance, of camera, of all of that. And I want to find the takes and the scenes that are emotionally real to me and assemble them. And then I start working with the director when they're done shooting and we go through all of that. But the editor has a tremendous amount of influence on what that movie is. There are times where I can take a line reading from one take and put it with the visual of another take. Uh, sometimes I only use a word from another take um, and, and put it in. I can manipulate time by expanding or contracting, giving more pause between dialogue to give something gravity or speeding something up to give something tension. That's really what it is. It's like I've 
sometimes described it like if you're sitting at a dinner table and there are a number of conversations going on at that dinner table, if you really try to pay attention to where your eyes go, you know, you don't know exactly when somebody's going to start talking, somebody starts talking, and then your eyes move to them. Sometimes you're looking at the other end of the table and you see two or three people having their conversation. Sometimes you see what's happening underneath the table. Maybe somebody's playing footsie or whatever, or you watch somebody above, you know, reach for the salt shaker and do that. And if you imagine those are all different camera angles that are telling the story of your experience at that dinner. And everybody from every different angle has a different experience. And that's what editing is. It's like it's where your eyes go to tell that story. And I think people don't quite understand the idea of pacing in the sense of, you know, they're, they're very conscious of some action scene that's cut fast or mm-hmm. getting impatient with a film that goes on too long. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think they appreciate when an editor chooses not to cut or to mm-hmm. let something play out and that that's as much an editing choice as cutting fast or something. Absolutely. And that's it's always the test. I mean, and we screen it for people and try to see what works. There's, for example, there's a sequence in I, Tanya that I love for that exact thing for, for when not to cut, which is there's a scene between Tanya Harding and her mother. It was my fault. Nothing's ever your fault. I outskated the you other skated girl. like a graceless bull dyke. I was embarrassed for you. They're sitting at the table, and it escalates into an argument very quickly. And her mother is very mad and starts grabbing stuff off the table and just heaving it across the room at Tanya, towards Tanya. alien eyes at me when I'm talking to you. I didn't roll my eyes at you. You think I like working for you? You selfish bitch. You fucking crazy. You fucking that mustache. And uh, eventually one of those things that she picks up is a knife and throws it at her. And the whole audience gasps. You fucking whore. It's, it's so unexpected, and the characters don't even expect it. You know, they're, they're both shocked that it happened. And then, then there's just holding and holding and holding that creates this tension where you don't know as the audience member, and honestly the characters, you feel like they don't even know what the other person is going to do next. And you cut back and forth between that slowly, expanding this time, just to the point where I like to describe just before it breaks, uh, and you're just creating more and more tension. And then the way that, is, that tension is eventually released is by a cut to a scene uh, that happens to be very, a very funny line. Oh, please, show me a family that doesn't have ups and downs. And it is such a tense, unexpected, brutal scene that you're watching, and then it just gets broken in this wonderful way by this humorous moment that is, is a release and lets you move on. And that is something that's created in editing. I, Tanya, is the film that you've been nominated for an ACE Award for. Talk about the particular relationship you had with the director, Craig Gillespie, who you've worked with before. Um, But talk about on this particular film, like what was the dynamic in terms of the script, the director, and, and kind of how your work played out in it? It's very nice because I've actually worked with Craig Gillespie now, um, off and on for the last 10 years, we've done five features together in one pilot, and it is a real luxury to uh, work with a director that you know. Um, you know, it's always scary because you're 
if you if you've not worked with a director before because you're presenting your work to them and you don't have a relationship and a trust and a shorthand to understand exactly what they're going for and vice versa. So working with Craig was just an absolute thrill. It always is. We we understand each other very well. We have the same sensibility, the same sense of humor, and yet we come to it from very different places and can really build and add to the to to the movie. I, Tanya, is a film that really plays with narrative structure. For a film like this, how much of it is that kind of jumping around and and changing kind of perspectives built into the script, and how much of that comes about during the editing process? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's uh, it's a little hard to describe. The script was fantastic and absolutely had a lot of that built in. what was really added in in post and, and sort of worked with is that there are these interview sequences. You know, originally Jeff and Tanya uh, wanted to take out Nancy Kerrigan, take her out, and and I was the one who popped up and said there are other ways to disable people. So you're welcome. Uh, I mean, at at 27, I was uh, the most hated man in America. Maybe the world. Um, With a mustache, I still can't apologize enough for. Uh, My name was a verb. Like, if you bash someone in the kneecap, you you galoolied them. That was, that was cool though. There are interview sequences, there are, there's voiceover and then there are situations where the actors sort of turn and break the fourth wall and talk to the audience. All of that was scripted as just on-camera interview. And so we then had to work and, and weave this material in and out of the scenes by switching some of it from on-camera to voiceover and in these certain situations to breaking the fourth wall, which is just a, a very delicate little dance uh, to go through and figure out exactly what that's supposed to be in the correct way to convey what is a very um, emotional and tragic story for many, many of the parties concerned um, and also a ridiculously absurd and funny story. Uh, working with a director that you know just makes it that much easier because I I knew what he was going to be going for based on other films that we've done. The film feels really fresh in terms of how the story plays out. Did you feel that you were that you were finding new challenges on this film that you hadn't had in other films? Yeah, we would laugh about that a lot actually because we felt like we we had this license to sort of break every rule of filmmaking. We did a little bit of everything. I mean, there are different formats used, there are different framings used, there's split screens, there's jumping around in time, there's voiceover. I mean, there's just all sorts of stuff and so it it really allowed us to try anything that we could come up with that oddly worked somehow and didn't feel like we were we were doing something not organic with the movie because there were just so many different elements. And it was, it was fun. I mean, surprisingly, surprisingly fun to do without being constricted by, oh, you know, it's a little weird to use a split screen here because we've never done it before. It just, it just worked. Because I'm a film critic, I got a screener early on because we had critics voting. And I looked and I was kind of like, 
I don't know if a story about Tanya Harding is like really what I'm, I want to see. And I popped that in and I have to say within seconds, like it had me hooked. <laughs> well, you know, that's the exact same feeling that I had when Craig called me and said, hey, I just got this script that I might be directing about Tanya Harding. I had that, I had that exact same sort of, I had a deflation like, really, that's what you want to do next? Why? And then I read the script, and I immediately also, I was like, oh, I get it. This is not at all what I expect it to be. And I think that's one of the most unique things about this film, is that a lot of people have, and it's sort of the point of the film, too, a lot of people have a very preconceived notion of Tanya Harding. Generally, people either love Tanya or not big fans just like people either love America or they're not big fans. Tanya was totally American. Because of what we've been told, what we were told 25 years ago by the media and that story, and what we remember over the course of the last 25 years. There's a line in the movie that one of the characters says of, yeah, a lot of people thought Tanya hit Nancy herself. And I remember when I read that line, I was like, I thought, that was the case. It's not the case. But, you know, you just misremember history. And I think that this is one of the really unique things about this film is that, you know, it, it is not, it's not trying to solve a mystery. It's not trying to tell you that something that you thought is wrong. It's not trying to absolve anybody or whitewash anything that, that happened. It's just trying to give you a little bit more perspective about who these people were as people, a, a three-dimensionality of who they are rather than who we were told to think they are. And I think it just makes it, makes it more fair. That's people's impression of me. Um, and I'm a real person. You know, I, I never apologize for growing up poor, being a redneck, which is what I am. Um, you know, in a, Sport where the friggin' judges want you to be this old-timey version of what a woman's supposed to be. For being the first U.S. woman to land the triple axel. Everybody going into that movie feels differently when they come out than they thought they would feel. That doesn't mean it's changing your opinion. You just feel very differently. Well, what I thought worked so well is the fact that you're dealing with a story that's kind of this tabloid headline and this story that you remember mostly through a lot of quick media cuts and things like that. And the format that's chosen to tell it kind of emphasizes all those kind of elements. So it's like the the style of telling the story perfectly matches kind of the content of it. It does, yeah, and that was the really unique tactic that the writer took. He, he watched the 30 for 30 documentary about Tanya Harding and just thought it was such a fascinating story and decided to find her and interview her. And so he, he did, and then he decided to do the same with her ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, and interviewed him, and, and they had, as it says on the very front card of the movie, wildly contradictory stories. And that, when, when, that, when he was sitting there listening and, to, to Jeff... After hearing Tanya, he was like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is exactly how I have to tell this story. And it works so well. 
you know, you not only have them, but you have other characters telling their points of view, and it just makes it extremely unique and quite fresh and unexpected. Looking at your credits, you have a a mix of films where there are some films that are kind of action and horror. You've worked on Fright Night, but then also kind of small indie films like The Way, Way Back, where it's more about character and dialogue. What are the different challenges in in working in, in those kind of different films? I really enjoy working on, on different types of films. It keeps my job very, very interesting. I think that editors like actors or writers or directors or ever anybody can very quickly become typecast as a particular type you know you oh that's the horror person that's the action person you know whatever and then you the comedy guy you know whatever you can get stuck having only those opportunities to to work on and not being able to break out of that i've tried to to sort of actively as much as anyone can control one's own career try to shake that up as much as I can and work on different kinds of films. Mostly also just because I like different kinds of films. I go to all all different kinds and it's interesting. I want to work on the same movie over and over again. They're very different. You know, a small little indie uh, is a very different experience than a big studio movie. Neither is better or worse. They're just very different. You know, in a big studio movie, there are many, many people, more people involved. And, you know, you sort of have to please... Uh, a big team of people uh, because they're going for a specific thing. Whereas on an indie film, like the way, way back, and and certainly I, Tanya was this way. It was very much an independent film. Um, we are left much more alone and really get to um, make, it, it really becomes kind of more of a filmmaker's thing. You know, it is the film that the, that the director wanted to make, or at least much more close to that. And it's it's wonderful. It's really, really wonderful and refreshing. It's oftentimes a lot more difficult because the schedules are much shorter and the budgets are much smaller, and you have a lot of uh, a lot of constraints that way. But it's a very unique and wonderful uh, and gratifying way of storytelling. What is it about editing that you personally just find are are the most attracted to what is it about the job that kind of it's like this is exactly why I love doing it it's very challenging it's it's and it's really rewarding and it's uh, it's one of the few positions uh, you know besides directing the movie yourself where you um you get to have such an impact on the movie on a set there are a hundred plus people all grasping at the director for their attention and getting answers and this and that, and you have the, the, the time schedule constraints and everything, and you're, you're just frantically trying to get everything done. When they, in post-production, you know, after it's shot, you're sitting there in a room with the director, just the two of you, for the next six to nine months together, and it's a very, very intimate, collaborative way of working where you get to really uh, be precise and, and um, try and experiment and and uh, be very vulnerable and about the material and try things in a safe space and really create and make a movie. That's what editing is. It's a lot like writing. People, you know, have often described it as the, you know, the third draft, the third write, rewrite of the script. And you don't know what that's going to be until you're actually in there working on it. The movie that is made is often and usually very different than the than the movie that is intended or thought would be made. And 
almost always for the better. It's always very, very fun to, to, to get to know the movie. You know, you don't know what it is. It's like being pregnant, you know. You, you know and love your child, and then when, you actually, when they're actually born, you get to actually meet them and find out what their personality is. And it's the same with a movie. On Itania in particular, do you remember any particularly challenging sequences or, or any ones where, like, you went one direction and then just completely had to kind of revisit it and go a different way? Sure, yeah. There were, well, there were many challenging sequences, and that was a, a very uh, fun part of this particular movie is that there are all kinds of different things. There are the skating sequences, which are just great fun and tremendous personality in each and every one of them. And then there are, you know, dialogue sequences, which are really fun, and you sit and you work with the pacing and the performance, and you can change anything from a line reading to a little eye movement, which can change the, you know, the, the, the message of the scene. I think the most challenging thing in this film overall was trying to, uh, trying to work that tone, you know, because it's a very... It's a pretty harsh movie in certain ways with the with the domestic violence and stuff, and it's difficult. It can be a really brutal, brutal, honest film in that way. Uh, also juxtaposed with this absolute absurdity of the of the story, and quite comical and funny. Um, and it's a hard it's a hard dance to go back and forth between that appropriately with respect and good storytelling. So. Doing that and working with the interviews and the voiceover and this breaking the fourth wall and stuff like that was took time and, and um, uh, practice and screening it for people to make sure that we had all of the right elements in there. Well, you mentioned tone, and that's what you guys nailed. It was such a – you mentioned dance and tone, and it was such this, like, tight wire, mm-hmm. tightrope act where – Going a little too much this way would have been wrong, and a little too much that way would have been wrong. But you, you guys pulled it off. I mean, that's what was so impressive about the film is that you found yourself laughing and then being aghast, and then yeah. you know, and and then having compassion for for Tanya Harding, which you know I don't think anybody <laughs> thought that they would be able to have. Um, you know, going into it. it, yeah, it's interesting. You know, the same thing happened with the first film that I. I did with Craig uh, Lars and the Real Girl, where we used to literally say if we had gone five degrees uh, left or right, we would have ended up with a disastrous situation. And it's exactly the same with this film. It's a, it, it is a dance. It's a very, very delicate dance. I think it worked. <laughs> well, and is it difficult as an editor in the sense of that tone is so hard to get, and I think the editing played a key role in getting it, and yet part of your job is to be invisible almost. Mm-hmm. It's like if people notice what you're doing, maybe it's... So you're almost working to make your work not visible to the public. Absolutely. I mean, you can do that quite literally by, you know, in some of the skating sequences, we are switching back and forth from uh, Margot Robbie, who who absolutely knows how to skate but is not a professional Olympian <laughs> skater. We have to switch seamlessly back and forth from her to our double, uh, who, who is a professional skater, you know, without seeing that. Uh, but you do that, yeah, you do that with every scene. If you're, if you're paying attention to the editing too much, it, it's often because the story isn't gripping in some way, you, or you're confused, or 
or bored or whatever, and you start to watch other things. I mean, it is supposed to be invisible for the most part. Certainly there are some films that are flashier than others, but it's supposed to be, you know, you always, always, always want to cut for emotion. And if you can keep that emotional thread uh, going through the whole scene or film, then what people, the, the literal cuts, people aren't really paying attention to. And who are the editors that you admire or who you feel have influenced you? Oh, my goodness, there's so many. Uh, well, obviously, Sally Mankey, with whom I worked for years. I thought she was just phenomenal, um, really a great. Uh, Dee Dee Allen, of course, Martin Scorsese's editor, Thelma Schumacher, amazing. Uh, there's so many. I'm, I happen to have just mentioned female editors, but there are so, so many marvelous uh Let's see, who else? Hal Ashby used to be an editor before he became a director, and I think his films are very influenced by that. Dylan Titchener, uh, you know, Michael Tronic, who's just fantastic. And, you know, everybody brings something to the films that they work on, their own sensibilities and perspectives, and there's so many really wonderful editors. And if you're lucky enough to have great material, uh, to work on some, you know, sometimes the bad movies are uh, a bad movie can be really well edited because you have no idea how bad it may have been. I, there, there, or there are good films out there that probably, you know, with certain editors weren't, weren't that great and had to be reworked by others. And it's, a, it's a tough thing. We never know what, what the material is that we have to work with. So it's a hard thing to judge. That's why I feel so bad for editors because I feel like they, I, I were I, I I fell in love with editing because my uncle let me cut a TV commercial once because that was his business and I was like mm. man putting this thing together was so much fun but it is, uh, yeah. and then I started to appreciate it more going to movies and seeing you know trying to examine what the craft was but I've I've always felt like I I only hear people talk about editing usually when they go like that film was too long should have been yeah. cut down. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes that's not our choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sometimes, in fact, often it's the director who is who is just quite attached to something, and, and sometimes we're just sitting there going, oh, why is this still here? <laughs> if you could pick, you know, a, a couple films or three films to recommend to people as examples of, like, here's, watch these films, and you're going to learn something about the craft. Are, are there any that you would point to? Uh, yes, I would. Um, let's see. Well, Harold and Maude, I think, is just fantastic. I think that's another film that is, uh, has this crazy um, tone that is, that is wonderful. It's dealing with some very serious subjects in a very funny and peculiar way. Uh, All That Jazz is a really interesting movie editorially. Apocalypse Now, fantastic. The Godfather, Oh my gosh, I could go on and on. You know, I, if if people are curious about it, I would just try to find find the films that you know the the that those lists that are floating all over the internet of the top ten or twenty movies and study them, watch them a couple of times. And if somebody is wanting to appreciate editing more, just from a film goer's point of view. You know, the Oscars are coming up. People are always going like, you know, why did that person get nominated and this mm-hmm. person didn't? If somebody wants to go into a film just to kind of focus on editing and think about it, what should they kind of go into a film and focus on, you know, as a second viewing saying like, all right, I'm going to look at this film and see how it's cut. What should I be kind of paying attention to? 
you know, I think one a lot of people, when you mentioned earlier that people complain <clears throat> that films are too long, you know, if you really wanted to study it, try to, try to figure out what you would take out and what would happen to the movie if you did take it out. Is it still going to tell the story? Well, is it going to uh, is it going to convey everything that you wanted to convey, or all of a sudden, you know, if you a lot of times we have screenings and people make these somewhat flippant comments of like, oh, you could take twenty minutes out of that, and I was like, really? Sit here for twenty minutes? That's a long time. <laughs> if you actually sit with a with a stopwatch, that's a long time, and that's a lot of information. If you start hacking out twenty minutes of a movie, that you won't get. So it's. It, that's the challenge. It's like, really, what do you need? And the same thing is true with, you know, if you're writing a paper, you know, you go through and you have, if you are trying to make that as efficient as you possibly can, using as few words as possible, but still conveying the, uh, the emotion and story, how do you do that? It's, a, it's an exercise. Well, I was interviewing the director from Bone Tomahawk, and mm. he, which I loved that film, and mm-hmm. he said, he had some people criticizing it and saying, like, well, you know, you should cut it down. There's, like, all these scenes that really don't have to do with the story. And they point mm-hmm. to this one scene that seems kind of inconsequential. It's where the two mm-hmm. characters talk about how do you read a book in a bathtub and, you know, mm-hmm. can you say. And his point was, he says, you know, that might not have to do with moving the specific plot forward, mm-hmm. but it's defining the characters in a exactly. way that you need to know. Otherwise, other things are going to play wrong if you don't exactly. have that. Exactly. That's, uh, that's precisely it. And things may, you know, on, on the surface may appear extraneous in some way, but if you really start to analyze it and see what's, what's in that scene from a character perspective or a story perspective, it all becomes pretty crucial. Or should be. If, it, if it's not, if it's not advancing the story or the character, there's a very good chance that perhaps it should, you know, get trimmed out. And that's the process that you go through to find that, that, uh, that sweet spot of, you know, giving yourself time. You want to have some breathing moments in a movie, too, to just sit and ponder for a second before you get thrust into the next scene. But you also can't do that with every scene. And do you have any advice to people who are thinking of going into editing? Is there anything that you would suggest they do or don't do? Yeah, I would suggest that they cut. Honestly, I think I think it's a lot like painting or dancing or playing a musical instrument. It takes practice. You have to you have to come up against those uh, those challenges and those problems and 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 work your way out of the maze uh, and and solve them in some way. So cut everything that you can do. Work on anything and everything, and practice. You know, whatever that uh, the ten thousand hours of to become an expert. You know, you really need that. And it, just practice, practice, practice. And find the films that that you like, study them, and try to understand why. And listen to other editors describe how and why they do things. And if you are fortunate enough to actually get into the business and start working in the business. Talk to editors about uh, how how they did it and why. Sit in the room with them when they're editing a scene and have them explain why they're making those choices. That was what I got to do. I got to I got to sit in those rooms and listen as a fly on the wall to a, an editor and a director going through their creative process, and it was invaluable. And can you learn something from watching a badly cut film? Yes, you can. 
<laughs> if you can tolerate it. Yeah, you can. Because you start to watch. You start to, you start to feel um, intuitively, this is not where I want to be. I don't need to be. I, I, I'm too far from the character. I'm too close from the character. I already understand this information. This is redundant. I'm, this is unclear. This is monotonous. You know, whatever it is, you have to just sort of really pay attention to each and every moment, every single line. I mean, we will sit and analyze every single line. Maybe it's the same line, but just said with a slightly different grammatical flair or a slightly different tonal flair. Each one means something completely different. Is it more important to see the person say their line, or is it more important to see the reaction of that line, somebody listening to that line? Those tell two very different stories. Well, it's interesting because sometimes I also serve on selection committees for films and, and for student films. And sometimes people will complain. They'll say like, well, you know, they they didn't match cut that or something. And when I had the chance to interview Thelma Schoonmacher, her point was, she said, you know, matching a cut is the least important thing to me. It's like I need to match the emotion or I need to match the Absolutely. performance. She, she's... A hundred percent right, and I have watched her films myself many, many times, and realized that's what exactly what she goes for, always. And it's amazing when you really sit and watch, you know, not just her stuff, but a, but but a lot of people's work. Matching is the least important. If you if you are moving on a through line with emotion, story, and then continuity is at the very last, you know. But it's always emotion, 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 then story, then continuity. Yeah, I noticed that I recognize badly matched cuts only when the film is bad. Mm-hmm. And it's like I, there's nothing else. It's like I'm not interested in the story. I'm not interested in the actors. I'm not interested mm-hmm. in the character. Oh, his arm's in a different place and their hair yeah, is yeah. parted differently. It's like you're suddenly well, looking there's, at. There's one scene in I, Tanya that is, well, there's actually two moments in I, Tanya that have uh, just, uh, there's one scene that has just tremendous mismatches and almost nobody sees it, certainly not the first or second time going through. And I always laugh at that once I point it out to people, to my assistants and stuff. And they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. Uh, There's another that has a big uh, continuity error. Now I'm challenging people. Oh gosh, don't go look for it. You know, with with a set issue that we didn't see for ages, for months and months. And all of a sudden the director and I looked at each other and we're like, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) And we're like, oh, well, see who sees that one. You know, it's so difficult to have that. It's impossible. You know, things are shot, you know, hours, days, sometimes weeks apart from each other. You're always rushing to get through stuff. And then the actors themselves are, are in emotional moments. And it's very hard to to do things the exact same way all the time, physically as well as emotionally. Trust me, people always uh, always think that's when you asked earlier about a misconception about editing, they think that we don't see those things that they've discovered the mismatches. Trust me, we know all of them. <laughs> we know all of them. It's it's sometimes a choice, sometimes it's we have no choice but to use that material, and sometimes it's just like, you know what? That's not the important thing. We just got to move. We got to keep this emotion going. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time and for for your work on I, Tanya, which was brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed the movie. I, I really hope people give it a shot. It's not what you expect at all. I think people are always quite pleasantly surprised. It's, it's, it's a tough one, but it's a, 
it's a important one, I think, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, I think with stories like this where the story content itself can be kind of grueling because it deals with abuse and things like that, but the filmmaking is so exhilarating mm-hmm. that it kind of counterbalances whatever mm-hmm. kind of down you might feel from yeah. the story itself. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. That was film editor Tatiana S. Regal, who received an Oscar nomination for her work on Itania. Next up is one half of the editing team for Edgar Wright's revved-up baby driver, Paul Matchless. Matchless recalls that his interest in editing dates back to when he was very young. You would have to go right back actually till um, when I was about five or six. My father was a producer and a copywriter for an advertising agency in Melbourne, Australia, which is where I'm originally from. And um, when I was about five, he basically brought me along. I guess it must have been uh, uh, school holidays to witness an edit that he was doing for a commercial. I seem to recall that I basically sort of wandered into the machine room and I was confronted with the sight of these for the time, because we're talking probably sort of mid to late 70s, uh, huge videotape machines about, you know, three times taller than me and belching out sort of noises and sounds. And I was, it was a complete epiphany for me. It, it, it went along the lines of, I'm not quite sure what's going on here, but I want to be a part of it. Um, but uh, alongside that, which was more like the, the technical side of wanting to be in the business, there was just the, the side of, once again, my father, uh, because he was interested in, you know, the golden age of, of Hollywood. And so I grew up watching a lot of movies from the 30s and 40s. And then uh, I'm uh, uh, old enough, uh, I, I hate to say, to remember being taken to see the first Star Wars uh, when, it was, uh, when it was out. And I remember the excitement of being in that environment and, and, and witnessing that. And it, it was just a general move to the, the fascination of how, how it was put together. That grew over my school years. Basically, um, I'd got into a university uh, degree, but just before that started, I did a week's work experience at a television station in Melbourne, and they offered me a job uh, off the back of that. Um, You know, I was just on the studio floor, uh, you know, doing props and cable bashing, but it was a start. And so I sort of deferred the uh, university, and um, which I'm still doing now, just in case the, uh, the career backfires, and sort of uh, basically went up the ladder very slowly um, into sort of tape library, assistant editing, and then editing. But I always found that process fascinating, and that's sort of how I, how I learned, by teaching myself and really just watching Tons and tons and tons of movies was was my education, really. And when you started editing, what was it about the actual craft of editing that appealed to you or or that satisfied you from a creative point of view? Oh, I think certainly the storytelling aspect of it. And I found that that it was fascinating that editing really played such a large part in you know, I wouldn't say manipulation, that sounds like quite a strong word, but in, in, in terms of moving the audience or the viewer 
to where the director wanted to take them to, as in being a musician myself, my other little hobby was, was learning the piano when I was a kid and then playing in a, in a few bands back at home as I was getting older. So I was very aware of timing and I was very aware of, of, of cutting rhythms and, and, and timing and realizing how a few frames either side could make all the difference. And I found that kind of stuff, the minutiae of it, the detail of it, fascinating. And it was always an area that I wanted to pursue. People saying, oh, surely you want to go out and be sort of a director, and that's the big, the big gig. I said, no, 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 no. I'd like the, the behind-the-scenes stuff. And then my, my, like I said, I went from um, a more technical editing background to sort of pure, pure editing. But I loved the, the sort of combination or the, the, what you went through to actually put a scene together to tell a story and to have that kind of inner moment in your head where you knew the cut had to be. And it was one of those things, once again, that it's just, it's a feel thing. And I seem to um, have muddled through reasonably well, because obviously I'm still being asked back to, uh, to do these kind of things. But I think that was, that was it. It's, 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 it's what editing brings to the overall, uh, you know, the, fi- the, the final product. And of course, it isn't just the editing. You're also responsible for help, uh, potentially for helping out in the sound mix, the grade, the VFX reviews, and it's and it's obviously an integral uh, part. And uh, you know, as that grew, um, when I made the switch from editing uh, television programs to feature films, you know, I really felt the opportunity was there to to sort of stretch my wings and apply myself to the fullest to try and realize the, um, these fantastic ideas, which, of course, coincided with um, meeting someone uh, like Edgar Wright, which was completely by coincidence, as most of these fantastic things are, right place, right time. And that really, really pushed me forward in the ways that I probably never would have expected. Well, is part of the appeal for you as an editor also the fact that as an editor, you can experiment kind of endlessly and experiment kind of in private so that you can take wild chances and do things that if they fail, nobody else really has to know. But if they work, you're like, yay. Oh, absolutely. And I think it is all full of serendipity, happy accidents, which which I love as part of the uh, uh, of the editing process, because you know, you as you as you observe the rushes, you know, you start to think, okay, I can see how the director's kind of designed the shots. There's that's okay, that's the establisher, and you sort of move on, and you sort of realize what what the vision is of of the scene construction. But then, no, you're absolutely right. At that point, um, you can sort of go, well, what if I try and start things a little bit differently? What if that isn't the first shot? And you, as you say, you can keep endlessly tinkering, um, and there's no such thing as just a bad edit, because even in bad edits, you learn things from it. And so, so everything that you do, uh, it just gets you a little bit more information as to, the, you know, how you feel you could shape the scene. And it's actually a f- fantastic when you actually offer up, when a director comes in and you show them the assemble and actually you sort of surprise them in a way that maybe they weren't immediately thinking uh, you know, because in their heads, the scene went this way and the scene almost goes that way. But there's a few little surprises, which actually is one of the, the, the joys of having the time to go through everything, to find all the little bits and bobs. And, and certainly I would, I would recommend definitely that as an editor, you watch through all takes, not even just circled ones, because it's, it's, there's so many little moments that are worth jotting down and worth remembering and things that you can steal and put somewhere else in the scene 
you know, the, the amount of tinkering and playing and options um, and offering up three or four different versions of a scene to tell the same story in a slightly different way can be endlessly satisfying. You mentioned that you got to meet Edgar Wright early on in his career. You, you started working with him on Spaced, his That's TV right. show. Mm-hmm. Talk about editing on Space because that show, I have to say, if I had to only pick one show to bring with me to a desert island, it would be that because it is endlessly enjoyable and every time you watch it, you find something new. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 of course, now it's a wonderful sort of little time capsule of what life was like in, in London, particularly in the sort of the late, the late 90s uh, and the, turn of the uh, turn of the century, which actually almost sounds like an archaic term now, but it's, I guess it's, it's absolutely true. And, of course, you know, Space was, space was an interesting um, show in terms of, you know, certainly for Edgar and um, obviously having written the, 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 the series with uh, Simon Pegg and uh, Jessica Stevenson, as she then was. I think part of it as well was them kind of thinking, wow, we've got this deal to do the show on a mainstream terrestrial British television channel. After this, no one will ask us to do anything ever again after this, because this is just going to be so mad, so wacky, we'll never get asked back to do anything. So let's try and throw in everything we've ever wanted to uh, include in a series. So if it was like flashbacks or flash forwards or little asides or shifts to little, you know, visual cutaways or whatever and references to feature films. Brian, did you notice that everything that transpired in those three films, and I mean everything, can be attributed to the actions of one very minor character? Who? The gunner on the Star Destroyer at the beginning of the first film. How come? Well, because if the gunner had shot the pod that C-3PO and R2 were in, they wouldn't have got to Tatooine, they wouldn't have met Luke, Luke wouldn't have met Ben, they wouldn't have met Han and Chewie, they wouldn't have rescued Princess Leia. None of it would have happened. Chaos theory. Everything was thrown in, and I think really you can see space as the the beginnings of where, where Edgar's craft as a director really sort of came into its own, and, and there are some stylistic things there, which, uh, you know, he still, he still sort of calls upon occasionally today. The way that worked, Chris Dickens cut the first series, and at that stage in my career, I was an online editor. So I was running a machine made by Discrete Logic called uh, Smoke, um, which was a finishing tool. And initially, Edgar came in as a client, you, and I was being told, right, Starting Monday, you're working with this young guy, Edgar Wright. He's got this show, and we think it's perfect for the machine you're working on, so uh, you're going to start working with him. He and I got along incredibly well. Uh, we both realized we had the same sort of really positive, you know, OCD kind of attitude about sort of taking the time to get things right. When the time came for the second series, I had gone freelance because that's when the point that I crossed over from doing online editing which is more technically based, to pure editing. And I really wanted to make that leap to the kind of editing which is exactly, which has ended up um, on sort of really what I'm doing now. So one of my very first gigs as a sort of a freelance uh, sort of uh, offline editor, as the term is, uh, with very little CV to my name in that regard, was when he could call me up and uh, said for the second series, Chris Dickens couldn't uh, complete the edit. Would I be interested and of course I said yes, and then dove headfirst into a much more intense uh, method of working with Edgar because it's, it's so much more full-on than, uh, than online editing. 
um, and it was an incredible learning experience, and I loved it. And then I spent the next, the best part of the next 10 years working on a lot of uh, British sitcoms and a few music shows and dramas while Chris Dickens came back to cut Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. But then by the time Scott Pilgrim came along, I once again got the phone call from Edgar to join him on that and have basically been with him ever since. Before we talk about Baby Driver, because that's the current film that you've Mm -hmm. worked on, I want to talk a little bit more about you working with Edgar on comedy. And can you give a little insight into kind of the approach the two of you took in editing the comedy? Because so much humor in the film is really in the cuts, in in the timing of those cuts. I mean, if you cut them differently, you're not going to get a laugh if it holds like a, a beat too long or something. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say I would say an influence, ironically, from of, of both of us, even though it came from two separate directions, was uh, the Coen brothers, funnily enough. Uh, I'm, I know Edgar says one of his most favorite films ever is Raising Arizona. Alongside that, I spent many years just w- watching the way they the way they they cut for story and for comedy i mean you know the the only the only way i can really kind of describe some of their editing is 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 delicious because it really it really tickled for me the senses in 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 that way i mean in terms of timing in terms of just how how clever their approach to um holding things for just the right length. I mean, you can watch their films, and it's a real education in, in, in cutting for, uh, for comedy. Um, and not that, of course, in any way we were, we were lifting uh, uh, the Coen brothers, but I, was, I remember thinking it would be great given the opportunity. And, of course, you know, Edgar loves doing comedy as well, and, you know, timing is such a big part of that, that, that you know, that is, that is worked into the, that is worked into the script, into the way the shots are set up, and of course, ultimately, into the editing. But then you see that that kind of develops out of the the kind of sixth sense that that happens when you work with the, the same director over a period of of years, and to just be able to combine, you know, his ideas with, you know, your additions, which will obviously be the timing that you bring to the cuts and the durations, and just looking for those things. And it really makes it, one frame really does make all the difference in, in, in those moments. Um, and I know because I've, I've experimented, it really is, you know, sometimes the funniest way is, 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 is all down to a frame or two. That, that's the joy of it. And, of course, an audience really isn't aware of why they're laughing sometimes. But, but of course, it could be down to the, the dialogue. It could be down to the acting and the performances. But sometimes the, the cut um, can get a good laugh as well. And that's always lovely to realize that you can actually make a, combina- a, a contribution to um, you know, people's enjoyment uh, of the film in as much as a, a, a good witty line of dialogue. For Baby Driver, I, I noticed that recently Edgar Wright had posted uh, an image. It was like the front page for his one of drafts. Uh, one draft of the script for Baby Driver where he was giving very clear instructions about how you need to hear the music because that was important to mm-hmm. the pacing of it. So on a film like that, kind of talk a little bit about the interplay between what's scripted, what gets shot, what the director wants, and then where the editor comes into play in all of that. Well, you see, Baby Driver is 
probably the ultimate expression of that kind of combination of sort of music, action, comedy, drama. And that's something that Edgar had basically set out from, from the very beginning. I mean, he wrote the script with those particular songs in mind. Um, when we were originally sent the script, we were actually sent it as an iPad app. So you would see, you know, you could read the script on the, uh, on the screen, but occasionally there was a little icon uh, which came up on the page that when you pressed it, you would hear the song. hear the song and then read the scene and of course that helps give you a first idea of how the two are going to sort of mesh together and then basically prior to uh, shooting the entire film was storyboarded and animatics so all the big action scenes there was basically sort of a, an animatic scene for each of those which was done with Edgar and uh, a chap called Evan Schiff in Los Angeles. And then when I came on board and I was invited to go and join the, the crew in Atlanta, we basically filled in the remaining gaps. And with all of that, you know, with the music, which we had got cleared before we'd shot a frame, so we spent all the money up front making sure the music was good to go because we would have hated to have shot it, put it together, only then to find out we couldn't use the track. And then, actually, of the filming itself, we sort of had this quite complicated system where we would be feeding music into little earwigs that the actors would wear so they could hear music, so they knew how to sort of work in time, in, in, in rhythm. Edgar had a feed of music and dialogue in his headphones. And, of course, uh, as you may know, I was invited then to, to join Edgar on set, so to do the on-set editing. And then my role in that regard was to make sure everything fit because unlike a conventional film where you would cut a scene make sure it worked and then you would add the music afterwards to fit the scene the music was there it was predetermined you couldn't just extend a song by four seconds just to make a shot work you know you had to make sure the shot worked for the edit and the edit subsequently working for the shot so uh, I was actually out there on the front lines uh, with the crew and it was actually quite a, a fascinating mix of production and post-production because both, both elements had to be satisfied at the same time because we didn't want to get back to the United Kingdom where we did all the post-production uh, once we left Atlanta to find that things didn't work. So my job on set was to make sure that not, not that it all worked perfectly, it didn't have to, as I was really sort of doing a, a glorified assemble edit. But we could make sure that rhythmically, musically, in terms of acting, in terms of camera moves, in terms of durations of shots, everything fit in. You know, so we, we knew we could leave Atlanta with a good, a good initial cut of the film in the can. For people who are not familiar with editing, this mm. is not a typical thing to happen. Absolutely not. Um, editing is done in a completely separate environment. And in fact, a lot of editors don't like to see what's going on on set. They're not interested in how the shot was constructed. They just want to see the world of the film through their monitor. So anything else is a distraction to them. And that, of course, is an incredibly valid way of working. But suddenly your crew, you're doing 
crew hours, you're involved in night shoots, or you might be dragging your little edit trolley through mud and in rain and in all kinds of environments. And it's a very, very different sort of lifestyle for an editor, you know, and actually a very enjoyable one because you, you realize that not a lot of cast and crew understand what editing is. Uh, you know, for a lot of them, the director yells cut, and maybe a year later they'll attend a premiere. But to actually find that there's someone on set who's actually putting the shots together, and then at the end of the day, you know, you can review what you've shot, and there it is, sort of cut all the various setups, and it's to music, and it's fairly tight, and people looked on with genuine amazement, because it literally is that kind of magic art of of editing. You know, people understand what a, what a good sound mix is and what a good visual effect is, but editing is, is, a, is a slightly less tangible kind of um, uh, a concept for people to sort of get their heads around. So when they just watch, watch it and see the shots that they've worked on over the course of the last, you know, 10 to 12 hours, running in sequence and running in the kind of way that they would expect to see up on the, up on the big screen, it sort of elicits a kind of wonder and, and, and amazement in these people, what, what our editors kind of take for granted. You realize that it's, you know, a lot of people still think of it as, as magic, and, it, and, and, and sort of it is magic to an extent, really, what, what you're capable of doing with editing. Now, on a film like this where it is very precisely laid out in advance, do you still feel you have a lot of creative input? Oh, yes. I mean, certainly, you know, in, in terms of the action scenes, a lot of that has to be planned out. You can't really just go to a location, plonk down a camera and go, right, how are we going to do this? That has to be thought of and planned. And you've got a, a second unit crew as well who is also contributing shots and stunt drivers. And uh, these camera angles are all worked out beforehand. So for, for a major scene like that, very, very little is is given to, uh, to chance. I mean, having said that, Edgar may cover a particular shot with three or four cameras. And in fact, on one on one setup, I think we used nine cameras. You have the shot of the action that's required. You don't necessarily have to use the original camera. You might find that one of the other options um, tell the story better. So, uh, you know, you're, yes, absolutely, you still have, you know, the 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 leeway to to try out to try out all these options. Um, and like any like any good edit, and certainly for the dialogue scenes in Baby Driver, um, you know a lot of that was the slightly more traditional way. And of course, you would have a lot of a lot of flexibility in being able to tell the story. I mean, my my, per, my personal favourite scene in Baby Driver is actually just after the tequila track in the the warehouse, and they've all decamped back to the diner, and it's basically just sort of Jamie Foxx, Ansel, John Hamm, and Aza Gonzalez, and they just basically do a four-way around the table, but it's so riveting. Tell me if I'm way off, buddy. You were a stockbroker. Maybe a different wife, maybe kids. You stack your paper, but you say shit like work hard, play harder, but you play a little too hard. You rack up debt. The type of debt that'll make a white man blush. Maybe you get into a little trouble. Maybe you get your hand caught in a corporate cookie jar. Maybe you leave and run off to the desert. Maybe with your favorite lap dancer in tow. Maybe you disappear into a world consistent of three things. Money, sex, drugs, and action. Oh shit, that's for? Am I close? This is how I look at it. You guys just think this is a trip. Either way, if you are Wall Street, you're a bigger fucking crook than I could ever be. Go right ahead and speak for the two of us. 
think you know us. You don't. Mm. You think you're the last word in crazy. You're not. And believe me when I tell you, you don't want to see my buddy mad. You haven't seen how relentless he is. Because when he sees Ren, you'll see nothing but black. <laughs> And that was for one of my favorite scenes to cut, just because, you know, I believe you can maintain a level of tension in a straight, quietly performed dialogue scene than you can with some of the kind of major action scenes. And that's why I think the, the, uh, the, the film works so well. The inner heartbeat of the film exists through all the dynamics, the quiet dialogue scenes as well as the big action scenes. Well, that scene was great because you do get this sense that there's unrest amongst the group and the way it's cut with just like some of the beats where you're just seeing a reaction or something kind of builds that tension of is somebody going to fly off the handle here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's and I think that's the thing. You, you never know who's really going to crack next. And that's that's all there, and there are so many fantastic little, and that's and that's what, what what Edgar will offer up a lot of coverage, and he will allow the actors to kind of improvise and offer up their own little things, and that's why it's worth going through all the um, footage that you're given because you know the actors understand the characters as well, and there's so much little stuff, unsaid things, little looks, little glances, you just never know who's basically just going to flip out first and it's it, and it's great to always keep that undercurrent going even along what feels like a regular dialogue scene you can you can do it in in sound design so you can have you know low frequency rumbles going on that you may not necessarily notice sounds that sometimes I'm fond of saying are felt but not heard, you know, and you wonder why you are sort of got this little knot in your stomach, but there are these frequencies out there just helping to sort of keep the tension going. So you could do it in the soundscape or you could just hold on a character a little bit too long in the way that, you know, sometimes people get uncomfortable when you kind of stare at a person for a little bit too long. You know, there's that kind of, why is he looking at me for, for, for such a long time? You could do that in an edit, you know, just slightly overplay the edit for, for a little bit longer than you normally would, and then that induces tension as well. And so it's all those wonderful little tricks and tips to sort of keep an audience on the edge of their seat in the quietest passages as well as the loudest ones. For... Most people going to a film just in a mall theater or something, I think editing is still something of a mystery uh, in part because good editing is something that should be invisible on a certain level. Is there some misconception out there or is there something that you'd want to address to tell like that average person say like, hey, look at this. This is what good editing is about or this is what, you know, can help you understand what good editing is. Well, yes. I mean, two little sort of catchphrases that I, I, I probably overuse when people ask me questions like that. I've often said that, you know, when, when, an, when an editor does their best work, nobody notices. Uh, and nobody should notice, because like I said, the, the editing is that element which, which kind of invisibly strings it all together. And people shouldn't realize that every setup, every shot is done effectively individually and pasted together, because if, if it flows, if there's good dialogue going, and if people are taken in by the story, you forget about the editing. But, of course, it's the editing that's pushing the whole thing 
forward and driving the whole thing. So you, sh- you, shouldn't, you, you shouldn't be thinking about it. And, of course, the other thing that I'm fond of saying in terms of what editing is meant to do is that the art is meant to conceal the art. Along the lines of the first, first catchphrase, which is probably why I tend to overuse them, you know, they, editing is invisible. And when you ask people about the editing, they won't necessarily tell you what was good about it. But if, 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 if the point was to make you cry, if, it was, if it's a weepy and you end up crying, or if it's a comedy and you're laughing, then, well, the edit must have worked because it, it succeeded in its, in its task. Now, you look at something like, baby driver and i guess that's what you could probably call capital e editing you know big e editing of course that has people noticed that and it's there in a lot of reviews the editing has has been constantly mentioned in in, in initial reviews and of course here we are with a few few small nominations to look forward to because of the editing and and of course it's something like that which which in this instance we we brought a, a sort of a unique approach to cutting, and it's something people have noticed in this instance, but still not noticed in a way that it's overwritten the enjoyment of the film. You can't really say, oh, the editing ruined the film in this instance. You know, the editing was as much a part of the character of the film as any other part of, uh, you know, the, the directing, the acting, the story, the music. And so when you watch the beginning, and, you know, certainly in the first, the, the bell bottom, the opening chase scene, uh, as well as being an entertaining piece of work, you're sort of also, as an editor, setting out your stall to the viewer, saying, this is what you're going to expect to see. This is how the film is going to work. So you're going to see how things fall in sync, and there's a, an inner rhythm to it, and there's interlocking action and dialogue and music and cutting, and it's all kind of happening together. Thank, Thank you very, very much, much, ladies and gentlemen. gentlemen. Right, right now, now I, got I got to, to tell, tell you about... The, the Fabulous... fabulous. Most groovy. Bell bottom. Bell bottom. So it's sort of a primer in the beginning, you know, as well as being an exhilarating chase. It's like I say, it's it's almost teaching the audience a little bit. This is how we're going to sort of bring you this this film. And of course, you know, people have enjoyed the film as a film and have and have been kind enough to to highlight the editing and 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 certainly in a film like baby driver um yeah the editing is is a major part of, of what made uh, the film the success that uh, it uh, uh, thankfully was well it's like teaching you a language it's like that first scene teaches you the film language for this particular movie absolutely it does for sure but i think actually initially even when we were premiering it at South by Southwest, there was a little bit of uncertainty as well. Will people get it? Will people understand what we're showing them? But actually, after the reaction to that first screening, it was tremendous. And we knew from, in fact, from that first moment when they burst into applause just as the title sequence started, the Harlem Shuffle, as Bell Bottoms finished, we, sort of, we, we kind of all looked at each other and said, yep. They've got it. We we we're not going to have a problem with this, and so and that was a wonderful feeling to to know that that Edgar basically, you know, he was vindicated in terms in terms of sort of pushing his idea across and saying no no no, this is going to work and it's going to be great, and it absolutely was. And on this film, you co-edited with Jonathan Amos. What's working in tandem with another editor like on a feature? So in terms of working with John Amos on this. I mean, his brilliance in this is actually the, the action sequences. He, he didn't join us until um, we came back to the United Kingdom. So basically, my task was to go out to Atlanta for six months 
and effectively assemble the whole film. And then John came on board, and his specific task was basically he and Edgar would basically take all the um, action scenes, uh, the Brighton Rock, Bell Bottoms, and uh, the Hocus Pocus track, the, the foot-running scenes of the shopping mall, and they would do a tremendous pass on that and, 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 and punch that up um, uh, you know, to a, to a tremendous degree of satisfaction in terms of how those scenes ended up. My specific role, having then come back to to England, was actually then to go through the rest of the film with Edgar and basically um, go through all the reels, cut the dialogue, check the overall arc of the film. But then we would still check each other's work. You know, I'd be invited into their cutting room and say, hey, we've just done a pass on bell bottoms, what do you think? And I'd give notes, and then once... Edgar and I would finish one of the reels, you know, we'd watch them as a, as a trio, and then we'd all kind of give further notes and things. So, so John, in this instance, really came on board to do what, what he does best. Um, I mean, he's a very capable editor in his own right, of course, but he's really good at, um, at, uh, at action scenes. I want to go back to Scott Pilgrim briefly because... I loved that movie, and mm-hmm. I, I was kind of sad that it didn't catch on with a larger audience. But the editing in that was so clever. And again, I, it it had to be editing that started in the script phase. But the editing in that seems so smart and so fresh and just like moving the story forward in this energetic and just original way. What was working on that like? Well, that was that was incredible because I don't I don't think anything like Scott Pilgrim has happened uh, before or indeed uh, since. I wouldn't necessarily say it was ahead of its time. It sort of came out and slightly disappeared uh, into the cracks of that kind of uh, period in the uh, year of 2010, I think, when it was released. However, obviously, I'm I'm very pleased to say that that film, uh, you know, has a life of its own and it just. It hung around and never quite went went away, and is now being rediscovered by a lot of people, and slowly grew into. I mean, you don't you don't sit there make, thinking I'm going to be making a very expensive cult film. You you naturally want the film. The studio would like the film to 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 you know make a, a, a tidy little profit, um, which of course wasn't initially the case when Scott Pilgrim came out. But I think because of the story and the combination of the comic act, the comic business, like the on-screen animation, certainly the editing, and all those elements, it's hung around, and it's very gratifying to make a, to to actually be part of a film that has that kind of longevity to it. So while at the time we may have thought, ah, well, maybe I don't know, did did we boob on Scott Pilgrim? Why didn't people sort of get into it? It's found it's found its audience. I mean, it's made its money back certainly, and it's still. Um, uh, you know, people are still coming up and saying how incredible Scott Pilgrim was, and how wonderful for 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 a film to still have that um, that feedback and reaction with with an audience almost almost ten years after the, it, um, its initial release. Well, I think all of Edgar's films, the thing that's so great is that you can go back and rewatch them and find new things. Mm-hmm. And and part of what's fun too is that his references, his like pop culture references to other movies. Yep. are not always so overt as, well, here's a, a line that we're repeating from a film that you may have liked, or, you know, here's a costume reference or something. But it can be the framing of the shot or yep. the edit, and that yep. takes you more time to go back and find. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that's, that's the beauty of, of Edgar's films is kind of like the, the watchability and the rewatchability. I mean, you know, we, it was very, very pleasing to hear Edgar would say, hey, I've heard, you know, uh, I'm, get, I'm getting tweets saying, hey, this is my fourth, fifth, sixth time, uh, uh, you know, going to see Baby Driver because I didn't realize this when I watched it first. And in fact, actually, that's, that's, that's very pleasing and very satisfying because what we wanted to do is we didn't want to necessarily make a film that was saying, oh, look how clever, clever we can be. You know, if you just wanted to watch it as an entertaining you know, comedy heist film with some action and some sort of few little scary moments in there, then great. And if you just thought, wait, that's, I enjoyed it on that level, fantastic. But actually, if you do want to rewatch it, you'll just realize that like, like a, a, a clock mechanism, there are so many things interlocking on so many different levels, whether it is the editing or it is the music, or it is the, the, the way actors just even move props around, how they're kind of locked in, and the timing of cuts, and, and, and lots of little things. If you want to take the time, they're all there to be discovered. We didn't kind of, we didn't sort of hide them and say, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to show you how we did it. They're actually all there. We, we sort of invited the audience to, to share in, in how we that we'd put that together. But if you didn't want to, you didn't have to, and it didn't detract from your enjoyment of the film. Um, and in that, you know, there's always that thing where people go, hey, I watched Baby Driver for the fifth time. I never realized what happened here was a callback to what happened an hour earlier, or this thing meant that. It, it's wonderful, you know, that, 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 you know, a little bit like the the Russian, the Russian egg. You can always open open something up, and there's something else inside there. And then you go open that up, and there's something else inside there. And to sort of witness witness that um, sort of taking place, and people people just really enjoying the making of without sort of you don't have to tear the film apart. You can just view it and then sort of see all these layers get revealed to you over time. And did he give you kind of a screening list of uh, films that he thought you should watch before editing this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Edgar, Edgar does, does make, uh, you know, he makes little kind of taster reels where he will sort of say, you know, this sequence, I sort of had this in mind. And in fact, we've done that for actually almost all of Edgar's films. We, we kind of do a, a mood reel just to give you an idea of where, what's going on in Edgar's head, where he's kind of coming from. Um, and, and alongside that, there is a little film list he makes of about, you know, 40 or 50 movies, ranging from, you know, even like the 1930s, Busby, Busby Berkeley musicals, to stuff from the present day. Which he says, this was sort of what I was thinking, or I watched this, and I thought, that's a really good idea. So have a little look at this, and look at these little elements from each film, and we're going to put it all together. That's what I'm sort of thinking of for Baby Driver. So that's always fun at the beginning to sort of watch all of that and go, gosh, how, how are we going to take all these things and make something new out of all these, out of all these elements? Um, but, of course, you do, and it, and, and it works. And actually, if you think about it, now that I'm thinking about it, it almost goes back to space. It's like, well, what if you wanted to put all your favorite things that are relevant into one, into one film? So all these little ideas sort of have a little a little life and there may be tiny little quotes or references all very subtle but they're kind of there to to be once again to kind of be discovered in the movie and for baby driver do you remember any particular films that he suggested you watch that you really felt 
kind of helped you find the mood or the tone or something? Oh, well, I know I know he was a big fan of Walter Hill's The Driver and certainly uh, movies like French Connection and various things like that were uh, were big influences. But I mean there there were films across a number of a number of genres. I mean the Sugarland Express was one because that had some elements of the, you know, a, a, a young couple fleeing the police and uh, uh, various elements like that. So you would just look at all these things and watching them one after another, it made for a very interesting montage of films and you would sort of maybe get a bit nostalgic about it, but actually you would think, oh, right, okay, so there's just an element of that that chase sequence or the way that heist was constructed. Um, and like I say, they're all kind of blended in together, but actually, you know, done in Edgar's kind of unique For people who want to learn a little more about editing or appreciate it a little more, could you recommend a couple of films that you felt either influenced you or that they could go in with kind of this conscious sense of like, I want to go in and watch this film and try to appreciate what the craft of editing is about? Can you recommend a couple of films and a couple of things that they might look for while they're watching? Well, certainly I would be... um uh, it would be remiss of me if I didn't mention at least, say, one Coen Brothers film. And funny enough, it's it's one that initially didn't didn't do uh, that well, and that's the Hudsucker Proxy, um, which I think came out in the early nineties. For me, there are some of the most my most uh, I use the term again delicious edits for me in in some in in modern filmmaking. Some of the sequences that rely on editing to sort of get the the little montages or moments where the hula hoop is created and the mix of music and, you know, camera uh, shot, you know, images shot at various frame rates, but then all knitted together with editing. You know, I, I, I sort of sometimes drool at just the, the, the sheer overwhelming joy of how that is put together. A complete opposite would be, in fact, one of my favorite films ever, which is Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon which is an interesting one that came out between The Clockwork Orange and The Shining. You, you couldn't get a more opposite style of filmmaking, of editing, uh, between, say, The Hudsucker Proxy and Barry Lyndon. And Barry Lyndon is, for me, I mean, it's over three hours long. The editing is slow, it's stately, it's mannered, but it's never boring. For me, it's it holds the attention. It's just as riveting as uh, the Hudsucker Proxy. Just to give you two extremes there, and I would say I would take from both of them, even when doing something like Baby Driver, I would be thinking about both films uh, when constructing scenes, um, which just, I think, goes to prove that really editing, which crosses all forms and all styles, they're all things that you could use as references, uh, even though you wouldn't look at it and go, oh, yes, he's aping Barry Lyndon. He's not, but I'm just remembering the style, the speed, the construction, and just having that in the back of my head. So just, just right there are two completely different styles of filmmaking, st- two completely different styles of editing that I would encourage people to watch and, 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 and glean from both, really. Well, I want to thank you very much for being very generous with your time and talking about editing. You're very welcome, Beth. And good luck with the Oscars. Thank you very much indeed. That's all slightly surreal, but um, (laughs) it's tremendously exciting, of course. 
That was Paul Matchless, who, along with Jonathan Amos, is nominated for Best Editing on Baby Driver. How do you feel now? I can't move. You're paralyzed. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. And finally, Gregory Plotkin talks about working on Jordan Peele's Get Out. He explains how an English major ended up as a film editor. You know, I was an English major in uh, at college at UCLA, and so I've always I've always loved to write. I found that editing actually is a final rewrite, if you will, of a film. And I've always loved uh, I always loved making movies as a kid and so forth. So it became sort of the, the perfect mix between writing and making movies. Um, and essentially, you're, you're writing with images. It just appealed to me. It felt like when I first got exposure to it, it, it just felt like it was it encompassed all aspects of filmmaking. And I started as a PA and worked on set and saw every department. But this this felt like the department where you had the most say in, in how the film turned out. And again, I'm, I've never worked on a film that hasn't essentially been rewritten in post. So it really exercises that writing part of my brain. And I love it. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And how did you get into editing in the sense of, did you go to film school? Did you just start working on films and, and get your training kind of on the job? I did all my training on, on the job. I, um, I graduated from, from college and then started uh, as a set production assistant. In fact, I was on um, a movie called Weekend at Bernie's Part 2. Uh, we were in the Virgin Islands. They picked me to run dailies at night. Uh, so they taught me how to run a projector. And I had to get the film from the editors. And being 21, being super excited and energetic, I would get there early and ask them if there's anything I could do. I wanted to learn about editorial. Soon enough, they had me doing a whole bunch of extra stuff for them. Um, at the time, it was all film, so I was making trim boxes and reconning uh, chem rolls, et cetera. And when they decided, uh, when they got back to L.A., they, they needed an apprentice, and they asked me. It was a non-union feature, so they asked me to come on board, and I loved it. Got my hours on that show, got in a union on that show, and never looked back. I never went to film school, so I can't tell you a, a direct comparison between what you learn in film school and what you learn on the job. But I found, just from people I knew and people I, I, that went to film school, I learned as much on one show with practical experience than a lot of my friends did in four years of, of film school. Again, taking nothing away from film school, because I think it's, it's an amazing experience. You learn so much. But for me, the onset and uh, on-the-job training worked, worked really well. And what do you think a person needs to be a good editor? What's kind of a skill set? Because editing is something that takes a lot of organization. It takes a lot of patience. It takes creativity. I mean, it seems to take a lot of things. But what do you think are like the key ingredients a person needs to become a good editor? First and foremost, a, a good sense of story a good and a good point of view. Uh, one, some of the best advice I ever got as an assistant and uh, carried with me as an editor is to always have a point of view. I know it may sound odd. Always think like an editor. Even when I was assisting, I had I had uh, editors tell me think like an editor. Don't just organize the dailies and exercise that sort of librarian brain that that assistants need. Think about story. Think about how what you're doing or the the footage you're watching is going to affect the story. And and I always, um, no matter what I'm doing, I have the entire story in my head as I'm cutting. So I have a point of view for for each scene, but I also am applying that to to my point of view for the entire film. The best skills are um, are forget organization, forget all that, because you, we, luckily we have these great support staff that help us in terms of assistance and so forth. It's um, being open to change, being open to letting the footage dictate where the film should go, as opposed to you trying to force the film to go in one direction. And I think that's with any good writing. I think a lot of times with 
from what I've heard from screenwriters and, and, and novelists and so forth, sometimes the characters end up telling you the direction to go in. And what may start as one thing can, can evolve into something else. So I think just being a good writer and listening and having that conversation with the footage it, it are, are invaluable assets to being an editor. And how does that play out in terms of you are working also with a screenwriter usually and a director in terms of a story that's already laid out. So how do you work in terms of kind of bringing that second set of eyes and bringing what your point of view might be for the scene and kind of maybe making the director see something in a new way? It's really case dependent. Look, I think you have to, you have to respect the, the source material. Clearly, if it's a drama, you're not going to try to force it to be uh, a comedy, even though you may see something funny in the footage. Or, or, or if you really do want to go that route, I think it's worth the conversation you have with, with the director and so forth. And that's like anything in life, it's communication. It's the, great, the greatest thing I can get are emails or daily phone calls from the director letting me know what uh, he or she saw on the day, what, um, what appealed to them, how they want to take the scene and so forth. And a lot of times I will, I will take my own stab at it, but I'll also take a version that honors what the director wants. And then again, it becomes just a conversation. It becomes sometimes you, you, you marry the two versions. Sometimes you pick one over the other. But I think I found a lot of directors love coming in and seeing a sequence and going, gosh, I never thought it would go that way. That's a great way to look at it. And conversely, I love when I cut a sequence and I'm convinced it's great. It's going it, to, this is really the way to go. And then the director comes in and says, you know what? Totally not what I thought. Try this, this, and this. And then I look at it and go, oh my God, that's great. I'm seeing the footage in a completely different light. It completely makes my, you know, my experience on the film different. And it's fun. I, I always say I love to be wrong, if you will, because there's really no one way to do something. So it's really great, especially when you have a strong director. And I have that with Jordan on, on Get Out, where you have a strong director with a strong point of view. You, again, you can start that conversation where you realize, although you may have come at it from different points, you both want the same thing, and you find that, you know, that sort of special way to put it together. Well, what I always found appealing about editing is that while a director on the set has lots of people waiting around for him to make a decision and immediately sees what his decision will yield, when you're editing, you tend to be kind of by yourself. And if you have a crazy idea, you can try it. And if it doesn't work, nobody else has to see it. And you can, you know, like, but it, it feels like it's more conducive to experimenting without as much fear of failing at something. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. Um, although it's funny, a director, a director on set only sees what they're capable of seeing in the moment. And I mean, they're looking at, did they hit that emotion for me? Did they, did they, did they do whatever? Did they get that line out? Did they, whatever. But what they're not seeing a lot of times are those really special moments that a, an actor gives you of a certain look, a certain blink of an eye, a certain head turn. You know, that's part of the fun of editing, is that you get to find those little gems that, say everything the director may have wanted or potentially the director may have missed. And all of a sudden the scene changes because you have that great look, which is nonverbal and it's cinematic and you don't need to go through a page of dialogue, et cetera. So those are the kind of things I like to experiment with when you talk about sort of my time on my own. Those are the things I like to present to a director. But yeah, to your point, I've tried tons of crazy things either alone or with a director, especially the advent of, of digital editing. You can, you can really experiment. One thing I'm curious about, because I work at a horror film festival where we have a lot of filmmakers uh, come and talk about film. And one thing that's come up a number of times is questions about 
Do you see a similarity between comedy and horror in terms of kind of the beats that are set up and kind of the way tension builds and is released? They're very different kind of outcomes, but is, is there a similarity? And you've worked in both comedy and horror, so I'm just curious if you see any kind of similarity when you're editing those. I have always said, it's funny you ask that, I've always said that they, they, are, they, sort of, they sleep in the same bed, if you will. Um, I think comedy and horror are very similar. Uh, they're all about setup and payoff with a with a joke. If you under under set it up, if you don't set it up well enough, it's not going to land. If you stay, if you overstay your welcome, it's not going to land. And the same thing with horror. They're both about the payoff. They're both about the setup. And in, in the joke, it's it's obviously setting up the joke. In, in comedy, it's setting up the joke. In uh, in horror, it's setting up the tension. And whether it's a jump scare that you get your release on or or, or some other device. I think they're very, very similar. All editing is difficult. All types of stories are difficult. But it's funny, comedy and horror are, in my experience, sometimes more difficult because there's so much more to, to think about. You're not just getting through the scene. You're, 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 you're trying to build this moment, this, this experience for the audience. It, it's odd, but a few frames too much or a few frames too little or, uh, can really make a difference in, in how well a sequence plays out. Well, in terms of horror, too... There's this careful line you have to walk between, like, giving away, showing too much or showing too little because sometimes it's more gruesome or more violent or more uh, horrifying if you show less and sometimes it's better to show more. So when you're editing, like, what goes through your mind in terms of, like, when is it a good time to to really show something, and when is it a smarter move to kind of pull away or not give as much? You know, I think it's case dependent. It really depends on on the film, the kind of film you're making. I tend to prefer the less is more. I think it's much more horrific to hear if you're talking about a death, for example. I think it's much more horrific to hear a death than to see the death. Uh, and I think the audience. It's much like again, I love to read, and and so often a book is far better than a, than a movie for me because my mind fills in all the blanks and I picture what, what I want to see. And again, I think that's, I try to, to, to take that a lot into, uh, into the horror of it all of if you see a, if you see a, something scary happening or someone coming down the hallway and then you hear, you hear the kill again, sometimes whether it was shot well or not, um, it, um, you're just, your mind's going to fill in the blanks. Your mind's going to get, you're getting scared already. You're going to build that tension. And I think it's really effective. And I, I love those films where you see, you know, the shadow or, or something of, of the kill and you don't actually see the kill. And maybe then you see a little bit of blood trickling down and you realize, oh, God, that must have been horrific. And I love when we come out of a preview screening, especially when someone says, that was the most horrific kill I've ever seen in my life. And I sit there and going, you never actually saw the kill, but you filled in all the blanks. It was funny, even with in Get Out, which I just did, there's a, there's a kill towards the end where... Um, the Chris character kills Missy, the um, the mom, and essentially you see this needle going towards her, and then we cut away, and then we realize that she died. And again, so many people thought how horrific it was, but you never actually saw the kill. But because it was so visceral in the struggle to um, that preceded the kill, it felt like you experienced it. So again, it's, you never really quite know what to do, and it, and obviously you got to take your cues from your director as to what they want. But, um, yeah, the subtlety and the less is more, I think, is, um, is great. And sound plays such a huge role in horror. It plays a huge role in all films, but uh, with the right sound and the right sound design, you can really sell a lot that, uh, that isn't on the screen. 
worked on Happy Death Day. And I'm curious from an editing point of view, because I know going into films like this, which are these Groundhog Day kind of things where you know that a lot of things are going to repeat. Hey, you're up. Look, I know this isn't going to make any sense. Stop global warming. I feel like I'm losing my mind. You sneaky little biash. Happy birthday. I've already lived through this day. Somebody's going to kill me tonight. So you can hear now. How is it when you go in to that? Because there's a point at which you don't want to repeat so much that people are bored and you want to kind of give each repeat some new tweak. So is is that a is that an, a, a kind of a challenge that you enjoy or is it a kind of a mundane, you know, mechanics of it? But it, it's a, a kind of editing that I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you jump into that? No, you know, it's fun. I mean, again, it starts with the script. Chris Landon, who, who wrote and directed that, uh, is really smart. He's someone that I have a great shorthand with. Uh, I've cut just about all his films and I've known him for, for years. So we had a lot of conversations about it ahead of time because there are sequences where um, we just talked about, again, the, the movements and how difficult that might be. But the way I approached Death Day was, for example, when Tree, our main character, when she wakes up in, um, in Carter's dorm room. Oh, hey, you're up. Am I in a dorm room? Yeah. I folded your pants for you. Great. Dude, did you hit that or what? I actually cut all the, the days that she woke up together, if you will. So I took two days and I cut every wake up. I think she woke up about seven times. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to evolve it. I wanted to, because I didn't have all the footage, I didn't, I didn't have the entire film built together. Uh, I still knew in my head that I wanted there to be an evolution to her character. She obviously woke up the first uh, day confused. The second day she started to have the deja vu. And then obviously it was, it was going to progress from there. So I was able to find that arc. And for me, that's all it was, was an arc. So I, I did her, um, her wake-ups. First, then I did her walks through the school. Uh, then I went to um, when she went to her sorority house and so forth. And I found that those arcs, on sort of that micro level of just just those scenes themselves, actually really benefited the film because so I was able to to um, to track her character in a really good way, and they informed me how you know how I needed her character to be. And Jessica was was amazing. She gave me uh, Jessica Roth as stars, and she gave great performances and great range. So. I found just tackling moments and, and, and scenes in that respect helped a lot. And then obviously when Chris and I sat in post, we, we went and did a, tons of passes to, to sort of hone it. But um, it wasn't really – being organized like that helped me. I'm sure there's a million other ways to have done it, but it didn't seem that hard once I broke it down like that. And that's also an instance where you got to mix both the horror and the comedy. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, again, Chris, Chris feels the same way. They both they, – they live in that same world. And again – Within horror, comedy helps break some of that tension. You just need you need to do these resets for for the audience, unless you're in The Exorcist or something that is just supposed to be intense the entire time. But otherwise, I think you know the comedy just really offsets the, the uncomfortable situations that, that the audience is in and that the characters are in, and then allows you to start blowing up that balloon again and building tension. Happy Death Day is an obvious mix of horror and comedy where you are definitely meant to laugh and, and enjoy it. You also worked on Get Out, which was amazing. And this was a film where there are moments of levity at times to break that tension. What was working on that film like? What were the kind of challenges you faced on that? The, the challenges on Get Out were a lot, had a lot to do with reveals. 
the fun of the movie is that there are so many clues hidden throughout, and Jordan is such a smart both writer and just filmmaker in general that he planted so many clues for us. But the the idea as horribly was, I never wanted to, the audience to be ahead of anything. Um, and it was, when do I put in a look? When do I, when do I reveal something? And, and I noticed that in, in, in some of the opening sequences, again, even though it was a quick shoot, Jordan got so much good coverage and so many options for us. But some of the early sequences where uh, the family's having house, uh, iced tea outside and they, they meet Chris, uh, and then the subsequent scene where they're having dinner, um, and Jeremy sort of interrogates Chris. There were there were moments where I could have probably revealed a lot more about his character, but I always wanted to to hold back, uh, knowing again having read the script, knowing the footage that was coming in. I always wanted to hold back to to save those reveals because you know I, be, I become an audience member first and foremost when I'm cutting, and I knew God I wanted to live in these performances and just live in the weirdness and not know what's going on, even though you know something nefarious is, is about to happen. Um, and in terms of the comedy on that, you know, I think one of the things that Jordan did, uh, and he and I discussed, and um, that he did really in such a smart way was he made sure that we were experiencing, and we made it transformative, we were experiencing the film through our main character's eyes at all times. It was always about Chris and his journey. Um, and Daniel, who played Chris, is so engaging. He's such a fantastic actor that if it didn't serve Chris's story, if we weren't able to experience it through Chris's point of view, we found it easy to leave it out um, or to recut uh, in order to serve his point of view. Again, a, a difficult film because there was so much going on. It was such an important film socially. There were so many things we wanted to say. Um, but I think uh, holding back in a lot of ways really served the film well. Well, one of the things I really loved about the film is that it never condescends to the audience. A lot of films kind of like hold your hand to make sure you get everything all along the way. And this is a film that you can see it two or three times and you keep finding more things in it. And I find that really enjoyable. Yeah, I think I think as a filmmaker or as an audience member, I always want to work. I don't like when, when everything's handed to me on a platter and then I know what's going to happen. And we took that same idea with, with Get Out. And again, it was in the script, started with, with, with that and, and we took it you know, throughout post. I mean, I think the one thing we did do again to make sure we were with Chris and to make sure the audience did understand at certain moments was, is the flashbacks. We added the flashbacks in post. They weren't scripted, but we found that they gave the audience little anchors that we understood that in those moments, this is what Chris was. He was figuring it out. He was understanding. And as a result of Chris figuring it out, now the audience was figuring it out. So it wasn't something too expository. It wasn't something that was having written that said, Oh gosh, you're doing this, this, and this. Again, it's a it's a visual medium, and we found that visually we were able to add these flashbacks to tell the audience everything that was going on and to accent what our main character was going through. It was it was a, a lot of fun to put those together. Well, and so much of it is told visually, and it's a film where you have to pay attention. I know sometimes I, people will say, like, oh, you know, is this something I should watch in a theater or on TV? And, like, this is really something you want to see on a big screen with an audience, too, because I think audience reaction also helps kind of add to that whole community experience. But it's a film where you want to pay attention to what's going on, like, throughout the frame and to, to see what's happening. And, pay, and again, it's like paying attention. You, there's something being said, and you should be listening and watching. It's a complicated film in that respect in a great way because, first and foremost, you just, I think at first watching, at first viewing, you want to just figure out the story. 
because you, again, we're not telling you what's going on. There's obviously twists, there's turns, there's reveals. Um, and then once you realize what the story was, you're able to actually now watch it with a different eye and a second and third showing to look for the clues. And again, Jordan did it so well. He's so smart in how he planted those. And but I think first and foremost, the reason why the movie was such a big hit is it's a complicated film. There's so many layers that we were dealing with. You don't even know what you're supposed to be looking for the first time. A lot of people don't even know what they're supposed to look for the second time, which is why you know the multiple showings really benefit uh, that film. Well, another thing I think that was great is that while people who are real fans of horror know that the horror genre is a great place for social commentary and that films can really talk about a lot of things mm-hmm. Um in very interesting ways that really connect with an audience. But I think uh, on a certain level, the general public or, you know, people like just casually going to the mall theater, they go into horror films with certain expectations. And when a horror film kind of ends up giving them more, it's, uh, you know, sometimes they're surprised by that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was the beautiful thing about the movie. And I had so many friends and family that prior to the movie's release didn't know what the movie was about. You know, they, they, through the marketing and so forth, they said, is it a straight horror? It doesn't look like a straight horror. Uh, and I always sort of thought of the film as more of a social thriller um, than, a, than a straight horror film. But it is nice when you subvert expectations. It is nice when an audience comes in and, and they're immediately a little bit sort of uh, caught off guard because they don't know what to expect. And I think it's up to us as filmmakers to, to understand that with the source material and to, to help guide the experience and make it fun, make it interesting, make it relevant for the audience. It's one of those special films. It was a great experience personally editing the film because you knew you had something special. I always tell Jordan, he wrote a great script, but he made a better movie. I always knew it was a very special film. It's nice that you start that conversation in the cutting room and then that conversation uh, translates to, to the general audience. I think that was really the, the benefit of the film. Well, you talked about early on that one of the key things for you is the point of view in the storytelling. And I think one of the things that get out accomplished so well was to give an audience a point of view that they, I don't think a lot of them had had before. Definitely. Definitely. And again, that starts with Jordan. He, he, he wanted, he always told me, he said, look, I, this is the movie that I wanted to see that I was never, that, that never existed for me. He said, this is the movie that I didn't, that I, this is my favorite movie. And I love hearing that because obviously you want to make sure your director is happy and that his vision or her vision is being realized. He knew, and he's such a smart filmmaker, he just knew, hey, this movie doesn't exist. Not only did he want to see it, but clearly a lot of people wanted to see it. And again, we, editorially, the best I could do was to try to make sure that we always stayed with that character. So we made sure that, that experience was never exploited, uh, that it just unfolded naturally, and that um, we stayed true to, you know, to, the, to the roots of the film. You also mentioned that editing is kind of like the final rewrite for a film. Was there anything in the editing of Get Out, where after test screenings or just after going through some, you know, decision-making, was there any point where something changed or something really shifted for a scene or for a performance or something? Well, I, I think it's well-documented that we, we altered our ending. The, the original ending was, was a little bit more downbeat. And after screening a couple of times, audiences were so into the film, so into Chris's journey that they needed a little bit more of a cathartic release. So, the ending was reshot. Um, in fact, the original ending is on the DVD. So that, that was a big change for, for, for the ending. But, you know, it's funny. The, the test screenings and, and the screenings that we did for just uh, friends and family didn't really alter the film all that much. It was, um, it was pretty solid. We, we ended up cutting a little time out of it. 
I don't know. I felt like we got a really good rhythm in the cutting room. We had a good sense of the film. So I think aside from the ending, it was really everything kind of structurally and, and so forth stayed very similar. Clearly, you know, I did in my first cut, I picked performances and certain things that, that uh, Jordan changed and wanted to explore different avenues and put certain things I just didn't, you know, necessarily pick up in terms of what he was, what he was going for. But we, we picked those pretty, pretty much early on. And it was one of those films that just kind of came together. Well, it was, um, it was really just a kind of a magical experience. It was great. You mentioned that today or nowadays for an editor with digital technology and, and things like Avid and these other editing programs, it's easier kind of to experiment, to like make a cut, keep that, make another cut. Uh, so how has technology kind of altered editing for you in in the time that you've been working in the business? Well, it's, you know, look, it's good and bad. I don't want to sound like I'm too old, but the in, when I first started, it was all in film. And I, I think editors had to be a little bit more thoughtful. Um, I know when I first started cutting and my first scenes on film, I was petrified because I knew if you messed up the scene, you had to order a reprint. And uh, that would mean you had to hand, that meant you had to handle negative. And then if the negative got messed up, obviously that was it. You couldn't, you couldn't go back because uh, the negative was, was sort of the final source. So um, there was a little bit more thought, I think, that went on initially. That said, I'm still very thoughtful. I take a lot of time in, in making my cuts. What it does allow me to do with digital is that I'm able to present close to a release quality uh, sequence to an editor, uh, to a director. I'm able to temp in music, sound effects, uh, color correct if I need to, so that they're able to see something uh, almost as you're going to see it uh, on a big screen, which is fun. You get, you get a really good sense of how it's all going to work out. And look, it's afforded us the opportunity to go faster, to try, like I said, different things. You can try a series of jump cuts and flash forwards and flashbacks and, and dissolves and so forth that would take days or weeks on, on film. So it is really good. I think potential downsides are because you can do so much, producers, directors, studios expect us to do more. And it kind of takes away from the craftsmanship of sound, of, of uh, cut timers, of of, of all these other people that do wonderful jobs, um, a lot is thrown on the editor's plate, but uh, visual effects, et cetera. But it's neat. Again, as much as I may be sort of, I may, I may need to do the initial cutting and get through all that and may not want to do some of the visual effects and all that, um, it is nice when you're able to actually see what the finished product is going to kind of look like. Uh, so you don't have, there's not as much guesswork. So um, I love it. I, I cut the film on the Avid. Uh, it's a wonderful tool. I've used quite a few different digital editing systems and, I will always go back to the Avid. I think it just, it's powerful. It lets me cut fast. It lets me um, organize well. It lets me be thoughtful. Um, so I, I really have zero complaints about, about digital. It's really wonderful. And if you could address any misconceptions that you think the mainstream public kind of has about what an editor does, what might that be? <laughs> um, I think a lot of people think we just either A or a pair of hands to cut off slates and cut off the tail of the film and put it together. Um, that we don't have a lot of say in the, in everything that it's all the director, it's all the writer, it's all the studio. Um, I, I am extremely partial to editors I, because I am one. Um, like I said, I do feel like we are writers, uh, as well as, as, as obviously editors. I usually on a film, I'm, I'm on for a week or more before shooting starts and I'm the last person off the film. So, you know, we are, we are 
filmmakers like everybody else, we we are super involved. We are integral to the to the process, and we're not just the <laughs> hands to uh, to cut off slates. We are building moments. We are again, and I hate to overstate it, but I think a film would be completely lost without an editor. The the emotion, the uh, the, the drive of a film would be completely lost if you were just doing what a lot of people think you do. And I just think the misconceptions that we're not as involved. And um, I think every film that's, that's been great and every great director-editor relationship is because uh, the directors allow the editors to be very involved and have that point of view. And can you give some insight to people who may not know what editing's like to how an editor can actually like craft a performance? Because that's something that you guys can do based on frames you take from a look or, you know, picking multiple takes or things like that? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's case dependent, obviously. You know, a lot of times we'll get, it, we'll get uh, the dailies back and there'll be circle takes from the director who says, yeah, I like take four. Um, that's the hero take for the sequence. That's the performance I want to get. And I'll watch it and I'll think, yeah, it's good, but there were great moments in takes one and two. There were these other great moments in takes five and six, et cetera. And again, it's that to that point of view of do you stay on which characters do you stay on for dialogue? Uh, is it more, does it resonate more if you're playing everyone's dialogue on camera or does it resonate more? For example, in get out, there was during the hypnosis sequence. <laughs> you just dangle a pocket watch in front of people's faces. Is that it? <laughs> you watch a lot of TV. <laughs> when I was a kid. Ah. Uh. Now you're feeling very sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> we do use focal points sometimes to guide someone into a state of heightened suggestibility. Heightened suggestibility. That's right. That's right. I found that it was more effective to play the dialogue over over Daniel's uh, coverage, over, over Chris's coverage, um, because I was able to, to balance the great performances of both but what she was saying, I found seeing how he reacted to what she was saying, the tears and, and, and the, the terror on his face was ultimately the best way to go. He was my main character, but I don't think anyone that sees that felt like she wasn't getting enough screen time there, that everyone felt that her performance was, and it was, it was equally as amazing as Daniel's. And I was also able, just as little tricks of the trade, to to figure out exactly what she said. I was able to combine a couple of performances from, from, from her and make sure that what she was saying was the most powerful um, way of saying it. Uh, and then I was able to see the result of that on, on Chris uh, Daniels, um, you know, with his reaction. So it's, um, again, it's all case dependent, but um, you just want to make sure you give your characters some place to start and then some place to go. And it's not always just one take that gives you that. And sometimes it is, but um you know, and sometimes, especially in Get Out, there were these curveballs you could throw where, uh, like when Rose was speaking to, to Rod at the end of the movie or towards the end and was, um, uh, was asking of Chris, and then she says, hey, I know you've always liked me, et cetera. We used a, a few different takes from, from Allison there where it was nice that she was very calm and, and, um, and so forth in the beginning, and then we threw in these kind of curveballs to the audience where she, um, um, she completely changes her demeanor um, and again, I think I pulled from a few different takes because she did all these wonderful performances and I felt like it shaped the weirdness of the scene, her performance, just how evil she was by taking great little bits from a few different takes as opposed to just one continuous take. And I saw that you are also 
looking to eventually you've produced on some films and um, it looks like you're also planning to direct some. Yeah, I was actually like I directed uh, the last Colonel Activity film. Um, I had been involved editing. Um, I edited uh, starting on number two, and I did the, all the rest of the series as editor, and then um, got this great break to direct the last one. And then uh, I'm going to head off and direct a new film um, this year. Um, and it's great, you know, it's an extension of telling stories. Um, and I'm I've been very lucky to work on um, some great films with great people, and um, um, there are people that luckily believe in me as a storyteller beyond editing. And um, it's funny, I, I directed this, the paranormal activity that goes to mention, and then my next job was editing Get Out. And what it did was it enabled me to see the other side of the coin. I know how difficult um, directing is. And, I, and I, I had known as an editor, but to actually sit in that director's chair and go through it all um, gave me this unique insight um, to essentially appreciate more what the director does. Um, and... Um, it's fun. I, I love editing. I'll never leave editing. Um, I, 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 in a perfect world, I'd float between editing and, and directing, much like there's a, the writers that sometimes they'll write and not direct their own scripts, and sometimes they'll write and direct. So um, I love my job. It's very fun, and um, it's great to take these opportunities and see what I can do. Well, I work with a lot of film groups, and we have screenings and stuff, and, and I get asked a lot by people, you know, I don't understand what good editing is, and I don't know what to look for, because most of the time, people only bring up editing when it's either, wow, that film was too long, it should have been cut down, or, oh, that film was cut too fast, I couldn't see anything. You know, and I'm just curious if there's any pointers you can give to people to help them kind of appreciate your craft. You put me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, again, it's, was I engaged? Was was Was, was I emotionally into the sequence uh, or the film. And, you know, I think, and I can just tell you from Get Out, if it didn't, if it felt extraneous, I, we tried to lift it. If, if, I, if, if an audience watches Get Out and felt like they were with Chris and they were following Chris and they got the, the comic relief when they needed it and they got in the horror when they needed it and they, got, they felt the drama of it all, then I think editorially it, it did its job. I can, I can look at certain scenes like the, um, the hypnosis sequence in Get Out, for example. Initially, I cut it without the teacup, knowing full well that I would find the place editorially where the teacup would accent what was going on. But I first I needed to get the back and forth performance between Daniel and, and um, Catherine. And then editorially, I found when is the teacup going to accent things? So I, I think she, uh, she asked him, tell me about your mother. He says no. And then I hold on him for a long time. And then I cut to the teacup. And then all of a sudden, he starts answering her. And that was one of those situations editorially where I was trying to find these beats and, again, visually let the audience know this is what's going on. And that seemed to be, as soon as I cut to that teacup, seeing it in certain screenings, the audience knew right away that there was an audible gasp in the audience. Everyone understood what was happening. So that's one of those where, again, not that it's fantastic editing, not that I did anything super special, but I found that the power of the images put in the right place, put in the right order, highlighted the theme, made it, made it really, uh, made it really go. Yeah. Again, like I said, if, if the film works, it was cut well. Um, and again, even if the film was long and you'd think it was too long, it's not always the editor's fault. You know, we don't make the final decision. Sometimes it's the director, the studio, whomever who wants a film to be long. I'm sure I'll, I'll hang up and I will think of all these great examples. That I could answer the question better, 
But um, I think if you got a good emotion, it was a, it was a well cut film. And who are the editors that you feel influenced you, or the ones that you really admire and respect? Well, I was really lucky to work. There's an editor I worked for named David Rosenblum, who I assisted for quite a long time, who's a huge mentor. I, I always tell him I still hear his his advice in my head as I'm cutting. So he was a big influence. You know, on the insider, I worked with David and um, Billy Goldenberg and, and Paul Bell, all three of whom were just excellent editors and. They give me a lot of great advice, and I, I look up to them a lot. There are people like Thelma, who, who cuts um, all Martin Scorsese films, who is just, uh, she is just in another stratosphere for me. I think she's just phenomenal. And uh, Michael Kahn, who cuts all of Spielberg's films. Uh, again, I, I don't think I've ever watched any of their films and thought I didn't love them. I didn't think it was what they were well crafted. So those are some of the people that I. That I really look up to, and then again, you know, being involved at the Ace Awards this year and meeting some of these great editors. Lee Smith is someone who I've always really admired. I think he's a wonderful editor. Uh, Tatiana Regal, who who cut I Tanya, um, she just she's amazing. She did a great job. The guys who cut Baby Driver, um, there's so many great editors out there. Um, I, if I love a film, I, I love the editor. I, I I know what they did to it, so it's fun. I love I love it. And if you were to recommend like two or three films to someone who is interested in editing as examples of like, take a look at these as well-cut films, are there any that you would point to? When I first saw JFK, I, I was blown away by the editing. And I knew when I first saw The Godfather, especially when we get to the end when there's that sort of montage of kills, I, I, I appreciated the editing there. Two films I loved. But one of my favorite films is, um, in terms of editing is Raiders of the Lost Ark. I remember watching the opening sequence where the, the Paramount logo melts into the mountain and then Indy travels to, to get to the, um, to the cave. And there's almost no dialogue. But I knew everything I needed to know about Indiana Jones. I knew he was the coolest guy in the world. I knew he could handle any situation. It was all nonverbal. It just felt like... Uh, and I remember sitting uh, watching that film then afterwards having a long talk with my father about it. And that felt like that film highlighted the power of editing for me, especially that opening. The film just flowed. It was put together in just the right order, just the right amount of time to let me know who this character was. You can talk about great scripts. You can talk about great dialogue, great acting, but just that, that succession of images, um, it stuck within my entire career um, about how powerful that was. So those are three films I've always loved. Goodfellas is another one I love, even though it may not ever match continuity-wise. That movie just flows. It is perfect. I will watch it no matter where it is at any time. Uh, if I turn on the middle, beginning, middle, or end, um, I think it's so well cut. Th- those are some films that I just love editorially amongst, I'm sure, many others. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for making some time, and thank you for the brilliant work you did on Get Out. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was Gregory Plotkin, editor on the Oscar-nominated Get Out. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It's your recommendation that'll help build a bigger audience for Cinema Junkie. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident Cinema Junkie.